Sally Freeze uh, caught me at the door right here and said, well, Michael, Bedside Baptist is booming. So I want to say a big welcome to any of you all who are joining us uh, at home and on our online community. I'm told we've been having somewhere around 40 or 50 people a week join in with our uh, online group. So if we have some additional ones today, uh, we want to say a big welcome to you guys. Uh, last week, I don't know if you all were here, but uh, Dr. Clive Calver shared with us. He and his wife Ruth are new members of our congregation. They've chosen to make this their home. They've retired here. Powerful sermon. Uh, who was here last week? Let's see a few hands. All right, we got a good few of you. If you weren't, I'd recommend you go back and listen to it. Just really powerful uh, message. And uh, following that message, a friend of mine stopped by my office, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, and said, Michael, that was such a good message. I said, I know, it really was. And he talked about the stories and the scripture and a little bit of Greek he used. And it was such a powerful message. And I said, I know, it was so good. And then he looked at me and said, I bet that made you want to go back to your office and work a little harder for next week. (laughs) And I said, oh, it did. Oh, it did. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful that we have such people of caliber and character in our midst? God is doing something very unique in our house. And God has not given up on me. And he's not given up on you. And he's not given up on our church. And he has not given up on our city. And God has called us, commissioned us, and positioned us to transform and be a part of changing the future and the history of Wilmington. Amen? All right. We are uh, in John 6, so I want to jump right into that. Um, where I'm at the very end of John 6, uh, verse 60 through 71, as we're going to start. Um, and I want to make a little comment here. Typically, I don't put scriptures up on the screens. I will have some notes that will come up there later. Um, but typically, I don't put scriptures up there. Not that I won't ever, but I'm a big believer in carrying your Bible. If you looked at my Bible, um, I've had this Bible for um, nine years, and you could flip through it and see all the dates and all the things that God has promised me in the down times and the difficult times. And in some ways, my Bible's kind of like a little history book. I made a little leather cover for it, and that's why I don't often put scriptures up there. So I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Um, If you need a Bible, we would love to get you one, but this is the Word of God, and the Word is with God. So, uh, we're in John 6, and uh, we're going to start reading, and I'm actually, while we're focusing on 60 through 71, I want to I read uh, verse 32, then we'll jump over and read verse 53 and 54, and then we'll pick up on verse 60. Does this sound good? Let's listen to the word of the Lord together this morning. John 6, 32. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We're going to skip down to verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Down to verse 60. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, 
does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who threw, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts with the revelation of your word? Would you allow the life of Christ to be lived out through every one of our lives, every one of our families? Lord, we lift up every marriage represented here, every child represented by these families, every grandchild. Lord, we lift up our congregation who isn't able to get out of their homes and join us this morning, both because of the snow or because of sickness. Father, we praise you for what you are doing in our midst. We surrender our hearts on this day. In your name we pray. Amen. So I have a uh, true confession for you this morning. I love a good hot dog. I love a good hot dog. I, uh, my parents are from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I grew up eating bratwurst and metwurst. Have you ever heard of those before? Big old kind of Germanic hot dogs. And I love a hot dog with sauerkraut. I love it with chili. I love it with mustard. I, I love a hot dog about any way you can serve it up. Abby and I actually grew up going to the trolley stop down at Wrightsville Beach and eating hot dogs. That's exactly right. So uh, we didn't go together, but in middle school and high school, both of us frequented that in our summers. And that's kind of a special time even now that uh, in the summertime we'll take our kids on a beach day to have a hot dog. This past March for spring break, we actually took our uh, family up to New York City for a week, and I brought a picture with me this morning. And uh, guess what we ate? Hot dogs. That's exactly right. So this is a photo of Stephen and I eating at Gray's Papaya. Has anybody eaten at Gray's Papaya up in Manhattan? Nobody? Nobody? One. I got them on, Mike. There we go. We, uh, when we were up there, um, we ate some great food. And Abby and I, uh, here's a little truth about us, we love a good hole-in-the-wall dive that serves fresh local fare. Just love that. And uh, so while we were up in New York, we took the kids, we toured, and we ate our way through the city. Now, I did some research. America consumes 20 billion hot dogs a year. That's like 70 for every American in the country. Uh, each year, we eat that many hot dogs. And I thought, I wonder how, you know, if you lined those hot dogs up end to end, how long would that be? So I did the math. It would stretch around the equator 7.6 times every year. Now, have you ever read the label on a, on a good, cheap American hot dog? You haven't. Not all hot dogs, but on many hot dogs, there's something in there called mechanically separated meat. 
So I thought, you know what, I'm going to look up and find out exactly what does like the USDA say about mechanically separated meat. I'm thinking, what, what is this mechanically separated meat? So here's what it says. USDA, that's how they define it. Are you ready for this? It is a paste-like and batter-like meat product produced by forcing bones with attached edible meat under high pressure through a sieve or similar device to separate the bone from the edible meat tissue. You're going to go eat a hot dog this afternoon, aren't you? (laughs) What we see going on in Scripture here is a group of people who want to separate and parse out Christianity. We want to follow this part of Jesus. We want to take this part of the gospel. We want to take this little slice. But we don't know if we want the whole thing. And you know, I think that in this day and age, many of American Christians, probably me included, us included, aren't so different. Where we're tempted to go, we want this piece of Jesus. We want this slice of the gospel. I'm not sure if we want the whole gospel. That's kind of what I want to talk about this morning, because I think we see this happening with a group of people, a large group of people, and because it's a hard teaching, they start to grumble and peace out. And you're left with a few key disciples who are willing to go, okay, we don't understand all this, but we're going to choose to take the entirety of Jesus, not the mechanically separated portion. So let's dig back into our passage in John 6, and let's take a look at what Jesus requires of us as true followers of Christ. What is the pure meat of the word? And what is he saying that is really required of us? So here's where I want to start. Pastor Steve, for a couple of years, has been um, preaching on um, Christ living in us and through us, right? We all got that. Um, in fact, I would even say if you, if you study the scriptures, if you study what Jesus even said about what it means to follow him, to follow Christ, if you study what Paul says about what it means, you have three kind of key takeaways. Number one, Christ died for me. Most of us have that. Number two, I am called to die with Jesus. And then number three, the resurrected Jesus lives in me and through me. Now, the problem is a lot of us, and I'd say me included, get stuck at living in this Christ died for me. And I think part of the risk that happens is if you, if you park your um, sort of theological car, you park your heart just in the space of Christ died for me, you end up with a very me-centered faith. You end up with a self-centered, self-serving, and you come to Christ and you're like, what am I going to get? I'm going to get out of jail free, you know, I'm going to get a get out of jail free card and not, you know, go to hell. Okay, what am I going to get here on earth? What am I going to get? And, and the Christianity suddenly becomes not about what we give or what we bring, but it comes about what we get. And that's not wrong, it's just not the whole story. Matthew 16, 24, you don't need to turn there, I just want to read it to you. Then Jesus said to his disciples, and I want to remind you, this is way before Jesus died, 
way before Jesus died. He says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Before he even died on a cross, he called it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross. Jesus died for me. I'm called to be crucified with Christ. Then he lives in and through Some of you are sitting out there going, yeah, Michael, we get it. We do that. We've heard it. We know it. Pastor Steve shared it with us. But I want to dig a little deeper today. I want to get a little more practical. I want you to think just a little bit more. And I I was even reflecting back. I love the four spiritual laws. A lot of you all grew up in the four spiritual law generation with Bill Bright. And that's such a good, it's a great message. God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? And he does. But the door to the wonderful plan is being crucified with Christ. And that's probably something that many of us are missing, or at least is worth reflecting on and beginning to ask him, are we missing it? So, here's what we have. If you park again in this um, me-centered Christianity, then people come to Christ thinking they're gonna get all their needs met. You wouldn't believe how many people I talked to that said, yeah, I came to Christ and I thought everything was going to be great. I thought it was going to be like the stock market. Everything's supposed to go up and to the right. And then what happens when it goes down to the left? A lot of us come to Christ, and in fact, sometimes when we share the gospel, we even share sort of just that good news portion. Yes, Jesus died for every one of us. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he pursues us. He has this never stopping, never giving up love. He will come after us, and yet he calls us to die so that we can live. For I have been crucified with Christ. That's a part of the gospel that I think for some reason a lot of us, and it's not just us at Myrtle Grove, I think it's the the American church shies away from. We have to be careful about a gospel that focuses on what we will get rather than what we will give. See, as you embark upon this relationship with Jesus, the goal is to become emptied of yourself, your self-will, and you begin to focus on what you can surrender to Jesus, what you can give, not necessarily what you can get. Jesus calls us to be crucified with him so that the resurrected life of Christ can live in us and through us. So let's apply this to marriage for a minute. Can I get real practical? I'm going to talk to us men for a minute. Because it's ethereal right now. What's it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean daily to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean daily to take up our cross and follow him? What if it means something like the game never takes precedent over my wife? What if it means I'm going to choose to put my phone away and not focus on my stock investments or my news articles or my Instagram or my Snapchat if you're younger? What if it means that I don't allow my job or my ministry to steal from my marriage? What if it means I choose to come home a couple nights a week and make dinner? Come home early maybe. What if it means that we become acquainted with the dirty dishes? 
Some of you women are going, yeah, come on. Come on, Michael. There's a, uh, I stayed with a couple in Chicago one time. I was up at Willow Creek Church, a couple I have deep respect for. And I asked her, not him, I was like, tell me about your marriage. How do you handle your finances? How do you handle practical things around the house? And she said, you know what, Michael, one of the things that he's done for me is he has never, I have never cleaned a dish in the evenings. He cleans our kitchen every single night, no matter what. It's just one of those things he does. And that was the first thing she said to me. They lived in a beautiful house. They had a great marriage. Yeah, they both had great jobs. But the first thing she said was, he's always cleaned the dishes. I went, huh. What if it means that you're called to have a date night and leave your phone at home? What if it means that when you're dead tired and you desperately want to sleep in and you know your wife's feeling run ragged by the kids or the house that you die to yourself and you get up early and you make breakfast and you pack the lunches. Kyle's shaking his head at me. Come on. See, men, and I'm intentionally speaking to men this morning, we are called by God to create a culture in our homes where our marriages and our kids are either going to thrive or they're going to suffer. And as we surrender our lives and as we begin to take up our cross every day and follow him, I think that is where the power happens. And we are called to create a culture where the people in our home almost cannot not choose Jesus. What does it mean? I was meditating the other day on what does it mean in Joshua where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I was going, Lord, how do I help my kids serve you? How do I ensure that my kids are going to grow up, that our kids are going to grow up and walk with you and know you and serve you? How do I actually put into play, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? started coming to me. I started going, you know what? I think that my job is to create a culture and an environment where it's almost impossible for them not to experience the love of Christ on a daily basis and therefore choose to surrender their lives to him. But that's partly on me as dad, isn't it? That's partly on me as husband. Your spouse at times will be a chisel in the hand of God that is used to shape you and call you to the full experience of the crucified life. Abby and I are uh, headed to Atlanta um, next weekend to marry a young couple. We have a lot of respect for We did six or eight hours of marriage counseling with them. And we actually helped them understand marriage from this perspective. Don't go into it to get all your needs met. Jesus is the meter of needs. You go into it and you begin to ask the question, how can I take up my cross? How can I serve? How can I love? How can I care? And when you're tired, when you're worn out, when you're grumpy, when they're short with you, you become the patient one. When they grump at you, you become the long-suffering one. Come on, some of you guys want to elbow each other. Abby might want to elbow me. But this is the surrendered life. This is the crucified life. It is a life sacrificed to Jesus and broken of every ounce of self-will. And you know what I think I did? I forgot my first point. Will you put my first point up there? Oh, you hate when that happens? Here's my first point. Maybe. There it is. The true, and this is number one in your outline if you're following along, it's in your bulletin. 
But the true gospel is the appropriation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Some of you might be sitting here today and you might be going, Michael, or watching even online. You might go, Michael, my husband's never going to do that. You know what I would say? You become that. You take up your cross. You lay down your life as a wife. You serve, you love, you honor, and you create a culture in your house where the presence and power of Jesus is activated through you. You be the change you want to see. We spend a lot of time in America talking about they need to change. Those people, we need to do this. Folks, Jesus calls us to bring the change, doesn't he? Jesus calls us to change. And out of that change, I see time and time again, when I shift, my marriage shifts. When I shift, my kids shift. When I shift, my church shifts. When I shift, my community shifts. When I shift, my city shifts. See, God has called us. We have no control over anybody else, do we? We sure do have the power to choose, though, right here. Every one of us. So as we embark upon this relationship with Jesus, we become emptied of our self-will. We begin to focus on what we can surrender to him, not what we can get. Jesus calls us to be crucified with him so the resurrected Jesus can live in us and through us. And in that moment, he brings that glorious plan that he has for us. But I'm telling you, the way to experience that glorious plan is through the cross. It's more than just Jesus loves you. And I have good news for you this morning. You don't have to muster the feelings. You don't, all you have to do is remind yourself daily that you've been crucified and Christ now lives in you. You surrender to him and you shuck once again. I do this every day. You shuck once again your self-centeredness. You shuck once again your me-oriented perspective. And you lay down your life again and again. Obedience is not a one-time thing. Surrender is not a one-time thing. It is a daily call. And that's where the power of the cross is evident. Back to John 6.61. What we have going on is you got everybody fussing. Jesus has just taught on eating his flesh and drinking his blood and everybody's fussing and that brings us to point number two. Being offended is a personal choice that breaks relationship with God and those to whom we're called. This is really important. Here we have Jesus, he's unapologetic, he's unwavering. Everybody's starting to leave. This whole group of disciples, they're grumpy, they're frustrated, they're like, what are you talking about? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? Jesus doesn't clarify it. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't back down. He just looks at him and says, does this offend you? Now let me make a couple statements here. There's a time to ask forgiveness. There's a time to be penitent. There's a time to come in a humble way and say I was wrong. There's also a time to set boundaries. If you're being drugged through the same relational mud every time, there's a time to set boundaries and go, no, this is no longer healthy for me. Is no longer healthy for us, but that's not what I'm talking about, either of those things. I'm talking about us choosing to be offended. I'm talking about us choosing bitterness and frustration here. I want you to, want you to think for just a minute. Jesus says in Luke 17, 1, offenses are sure to come. So the question is, are you going to pick up the offense? People throw out offenses every day, don't they? They offend us. Come on. 
They do. Our spouses, our friends, people at work, people at school, people wherever you are, they offend us. The question is, are you going to pick it up? And a lot of us, I think Jesus is really calling his disciples here, does this offend you? So the question is, when someone flings out an offense, Fred does something to me. Am I going to pick that thing up and go, oh, I can't believe Fred said that. I can't believe Fred did that. Fred must not like me. Fred must hate me. You know how we nurture those things? You guys know what I'm saying? We take stuff on that may not even be true, and they start taking on a life of their own in our own minds. See, being offended is a personal choice, and that choice to choose to carry an offense breaks relationship with God, and it breaks relationship with the people that we're called to. You know what I'm saying? We've got to let go of offense. I love this moment where Jesus looks at him and he goes, does this offend you? He doesn't apologize. He doesn't clarify. He doesn't explain it. Jesus squarely puts the blame for being offended on their heads. See, if you've been crucified with Christ, we're not going to be a people who spends a lot of time being offended, will we? Luke 14, 27 says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I'd call you today, like Jesus called the disciples, that if you're nurturing an offense towards someone, that you let that thing go, that you forgive, that you let it go. Which brings us to point number three. God requires our total surrender before he brings clarity and understanding. I want you to see here, he's talking to all of his disciples. He doesn't explain it. Drink my flesh and eat my blood. He doesn't explain it. He requires total surrender. You know, when I think of it in my mind, I think of the Lord Jesus standing there talking and it's like he just drops this bomb. You gotta eat my flesh, you gotta drink my blood. And then it's almost like he drops the mic and leaves the stage. He just walks off. No explanation, no nothing. But I imagine a strong, compassionate look from Jesus where he looks at us in the eyes and he says, do you want to leave too? Because all the disciples are leaving. There's simply no place for a hot dog Christianity where you pick and choose of the parts of Jesus you want to follow. That's not the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is all of Jesus and none of us. The gospel of Christ means our self-will is crucified with him on that old rugged cross. We have friends, Abby and I, a number of friends who are in difficult spots right now. And one of the things I hear from them is, I want to understand. I want to understand. And I got news for you. Jesus is very infrequently going to bring understanding before you surrender. I want you to think back to the Old Testament. Just think of Joseph in the Old Testament. We all know that story. Remember, Joseph has a dream, and then his brothers take him and sell him to the, some caravan that's rolling through town. They throw him in a pit, first of all. Then they sell him to a caravan. Then he ends up in bought as a slave in Potiphar's house. You remember that, come on. Then he gets falsely accused, then he gets thrown in prison. Did God ever explain what was happening? He had a couple dreams early on, but you don't see any inclination. What you see is God calling this young man to surrender and to trust. Do you think there were days where Joseph wanted to give up? 
you better believe it. You think there are days where he went, God doesn't love me? God doesn't care about me? I can't believe God is doing this to me. Why has God abandoned me? That sounds like us, doesn't it? Sounds like me. But when we press through, when we press on, God will bring understanding. You know, there's things that I often say in my own life. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about that. Do you have anything like that? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him, why? Why did you let this happen? Why did it happen like this? I think if we're honest, we all probably have a few things like that. I actually envision us walking through the gates of heaven and all those questions melting away. Just nothing matters in the presence of Jesus. And simultaneously, it's probably nothing matters and all questions are answered the moment we enter his presence. I want you to think with me a second. We got, the, we got John 6 here. We've now gone through the entire chapter of John 6. And you guys remember a few weeks ago we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men, women, children. There was probably 15 or 20,000 people. Jesus basically built a mega church on a mountainside. All these people came and everybody was happy to eat the food he gave them but not necessarily willing to die to themselves, to take up their cross, to follow him. And I want, you to, I want you to think and imagine with me for just a second, you're, you're one of these people who is just getting to know Jesus for the first time and he throws out this eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's almost gross. Abby and I watch uh, Netflix. How many people watch Netflix? Come on, moment of truth, a few of you, okay. There's a, there's a new thing that Netflix is doing where I guess if you leave the little controller on a show for more than three or four seconds, it plays the trailer. You know what I'm talking about? I don't like that new and improved Netflix, but nonetheless, that's the way it rolls. So I'm flipping through the other day, and there's this new show on called the, it's a Drew Barrymore thing called the Santa Clarita Diet or something, and it's about a woman who is a cannibal. It's gnarly. It is absolutely nasty. But I started looking, and I thought, this must be what the people on that mountainside would have thought. Jesus just stood up and said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Without an understanding of what it means to assimilate and appropriate the life and the death of Jesus. And he didn't bring full understanding. He called them to surrender. Knowing that understanding would follow. But that's a hard teaching. We've got to think about what first century Christians would have thought about what Jesus is saying. And you have all these thousands of people who then desert him. Jesus didn't try to explain it or clarify it. He didn't try to bring understanding. You know, Simon Peter, at the end of this little passage we just read, articulates the position of a fully surrendered disciple. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus looks at him. Let's actually read it. Verse 66. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Everybody starts leaving Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? He asks him, do you want to leave too? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That brings us to point number four. Jesus is the only source of life. There are no other sources. That word life in John 6.68 in Greek is zoes. 
That word is 135 times in the New Testament it shows up. Jesus said, I am the bread of, same Greek word, zoes. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Same Greek word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Same Greek word. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Peter is literally saying here, who else has the source of life? Where else would I go? Revelation 13, 8 talks about the Lamb's book of life. Same Greek word. Revelation 2, 7 talks about the tree of hearkening all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. This is what Peter's saying. No one else has life. I want you to think about a few things this morning. Who else has the words of life? Tommy, I don't know if you're here. I'll look at you right there. Would you just play for us? I want to take us into a moment of reflection and I want to talk us through a couple things because you might be here today or you might be know someone who's in a spot like this maybe you're someone who has lost a spouse and you don't understand and yet God calls us to surrender maybe you're someone who's struggling at work who can't stand a boss who's underpaid and yet God calls us to Surrender. Maybe you're a young married couple and you can't get pregnant and yet God is calling you to surrender. Maybe you're married to someone who is shut down emotionally. They refuse to engage you on a deep level and God is calling you to surrender. Maybe you didn't get into the college you want to. Or maybe you're facing a terminal illness. Or maybe you've even lost a child. And God calls us to surrender. Maybe there's something in your past many years ago that you did or was done to you that has created such hurt and such pain and you can't understand it. And yet Jesus calls you to the words of life. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and your body is aging and maybe you're even your mind is going and you feel like you don't have purpose. You don't have a place, and yet God's calling you to surrender. Maybe you're here today, and you've even struggled with thoughts of killing yourself, and God would call you to surrender and call you back into his life and back into his grace. I want to give us an opportunity here that if you've never eaten deeply of the body and blood of Christ, if there's an area of your life that you need to surrender, I want us to pray together. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Who else has the words of life? Just as eyes are closed, as heads are bowed, if there's an area in your life where God, the Holy Spirit of God this morning is touching your heart and calling you to surrender Fresh. I'm going to ask you to stand up. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and him. Just stand. If there's an area that your heart's gotten hardened, you've gotten distant, 
there's a point of frustration, a point of bitterness, if there's an offense you've picked up, if you're resisting laying something down, you're resisting the call to come and die, I want to invite you to stand up. This is just about you and him. Spirit sees our hearts and as he calls us into that surrender, the saving life of Christ comes. The power of the gospel to break addiction, the power of the gospel to overcome pain, the power of the gospel to mend our hearts where there's been loss and brokenness and frustration comes with our risen Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's touching your heart. I just want you to stand up. We're just going to press into him for a minute. Tommy, will you lead us in a chorus?